If you're new with us, we're working through uh, 1 Corinthians, and we come to uh, uh, one of, of many hard texts in 1 Corinthians, uh, and today we're on a passage that is uh, talking about the importance of uh, discipline in the church, the need for the church to be a holy community, uh, and uh, we've got some verses that you probably won't see printed on a coffee cup, uh, but uh, verses uh, that, that we need uh, as, as God seeks to sanctify His church. And so this is for our good. Let's, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for your word. We know all of it is profitable and uh, necessary for bringing us into completion. Uh, I pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth today. When we study your word, not to get a fat head, but a right heart. And so do that in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. I almost entitled this message, You're Killing Me, Smalls. Not sure if you guys have seen the movie Sandlot or not, an old uh, baseball movie. It's about a group of neighborhood kids who play baseball in a sandlot, and there's a new kid in town, Scotty Smalls, and uh, he's trying to fit in with the boys, and they just can't uh, get over what he doesn't know. Uh, they, they can't believe what he doesn't understand. He, he doesn't know, for example, who Babe Ruth is, and they're appalled by that. Uh, and then uh, in one scene, Ham Porter says, hey, you want a s'more? And Smalls says, some more of what? He said, no, do you want a s'more? And Small says, I haven't had anything yet to eat yet, so how can I have some more of nothing? And that's when Ham Porter famously says, you're killing me, Smalls. It's become a term of uh, expression or uh, exasperation and frustration that you might have with someone or something. And I think Paul could have used that phrase repeatedly in 1 Corinthians as he deals with problem after problem. In uh, chapter 1, we read about a report that came to Paul in verse 11 that it was reported to him that the church was, was fighting and that they had their favorite preachers and that there were rivalries that were forming. And so Paul deals with that problem. Then he gets to chapter 5, the text we just read, and you notice here's another report he's responding to. It's reported that there is a case of incest going on in the church and the Corinthians have done nothing about it. In chapter 7, he responds to a letter that they write him. And it's almost like Paul is saying in each case, you're killing me, Smalls. It is one issue after another. Well, in this case, Paul says that they should actually take action. They should remove this individual from their fellowship. But he does more than address their action. He actually, or inaction, he also addresses their attitude towards sin. He, he's, very he's very troubled by their arrogance. As he says there in verse 2, you are arrogant about this. Or he says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. And Paul has already uh, corrected this church about their arrogance in a, in a couple of places. In fact, in the previous text, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, he brings up this, this matter. And here their arrogance is being expressed in complacency, in indifference to sin, for tolerating sin, even sin that was not even tolerated by the pagans. And so this is not a sort of one-time moral lapse. This is a, a persistent, ongoing, habitual, unrepentant uh, action that has taken place and the church has done nothing about it. And it is not good for the church, nor the church's witness, to allow this sort of thing to go on. So Paul calls the church to be a holy community. And we said in the beginning of our study that this is one of the main themes of 1 Corinthians, that Paul calls them in the opening of the letter, those who are saints who are called to be sanctified together. He wants them to understand their identity, that positionally they're holy in Jesus Christ. Practically, they are to work this now out. And sort of a dominant motif throughout 1 Corinthians is this idea of become who you are. 
You are holy, now act like it. You have been cleansed by Jesus. Now walk in, in godliness. Walk in ongoing repentance as you seek to be godly. And so here's another place where Paul is emphasizing holiness. Now, there's a parallel with this text. You can read this later in Leviticus 18 to 21, those chapters, those four chapters in Leviticus that are sometimes referred to as the holiness code, which is a text where, where God is giving his people who've just been redeemed out of slavery in Egypt ways in which they are to live. And he's essentially telling them, don't go back to the practices of Egypt. Don't go back to the idolatry of Egypt. In fact, one of the first issues that's raised in that holiness code in Leviticus 18 is an issue of incest. And so there is a parallel here, and Paul is basically telling the church, don't go back to Egypt. Jesus has redeemed you. He's saved you. He's brought you into a new life. Now live in a manner consistent with it. And this idea of allowing this just shocking case of sin to go on is not at all consistent with what Jesus has done for you. So as we think about this text together, let me look at it in three parts. First of all, we're taught in this passage that a holy community responds to sin rightly. Secondly, a holy community remembers the gospel. And thirdly, a holy community reaches the world. So first, and this is the dominant idea as I just listed there in verses 1 to 13, this text is telling us to respond to sin rightly. What is the actual problem? Verse 1, it says that it's reported that there is a case of sexual immorality, this is a general term, pornei, that can be used of any kind of sexual sin. But in this case, Paul specifies it, a man has his father's wife. Uh, almost certainly his, his stepmother, but Paul could have easily just said mother, but in this case, stepmother. And this is in the present tense. This is an ongoing relationship that is publicly known. And so... Paul says this is not even tolerated among the pagans. You know, it's one thing for the church to tolerate sins that are normalized in culture. They go a step beyond it in Corinth. I've said this before, that when sin is normalized in culture, it's easy to tolerate it in the church. Uh, I've shared before a story where I was talking to a brother who had spent a good bit of time in Africa, and we, we were talking about crazy teaching that we've heard about and seen in, in Africa, and he told me a story of, of teaching on marriage and singleness, just kind of basic Christian teaching on the subjects, and a, a pastor came up afterwards, and he says, hey, I've got seven wives. Is that a problem? And then he said, I'm faithful to all seven. And he was like, yeah, you, that's kind of a problem. We've got, you've got several problems. You can only have one. Um, and, but that sounds wild to us, but in a culture where, that, that where polygamy was, was normalized, uh, it's, it's harder sometimes for the church to detect error or be bold enough to withstand error. And uh, that sort of thing is not just a problem in Africa, that's a problem in America. As many churches and even entire denominations are capitulating to culture on matters of sexuality. When sin is normalized in the culture, it's easy to tolerate it in the church. But again, notice that in Corinth, they're not just tolerating sins of the city. They're actually tolerating things that the pagans wouldn't allow. And Paul's like, what are you thinking? So we know that in uh, the law, as I've just mentioned, Leviticus 18, other places, that incest was forbidden. But even in Roman law, that type of union was also forbidden, even when the father was dead. So this is a case of publicly known, grievous, unrepentant, persistent sin that threatened the health of the church and the vitality of their witness. So what does Paul say to them? Well, first he addresses their attitude. It's a wrong attitude towards sin. Verse 2, 
You notice it's very interesting that Paul doesn't address the individual directly. He addresses the church. He's almost more shocked about the church's attitude as the offense itself. He says, and you are arrogant. And he says, here's the attitude you should have, ought you not to mourn. You see, this is the attitude we should have towards sin, whether it's a sin of uh, someone else or our own sin. One of mourning that leads us to repentance, right? Seeking to be made right with God. But they were, they were arrogant in that they were complacent. They were inactive. There was sort of a, a smug self-satisfaction in their heart. This probably stemmed from their wrong view of Christian freedom, which we'll get to in chapter 6, where they sort of believed that, that uh, everything was now permissible, and so Paul will address that in a moment. So he deals with their attitude, and he says, you should have been mourning. Like Ezra, who mourned after the sins of, his, of the nation in Ezra 9. And so we're reminded here of the need for, to take sin seriously. Not to rename sin, as is often done, or to uh, minimize it. It's also important to remember that the church is not sinless, but what the church is is a repentant community. We're always uh, repenting of sin, and that is the problem. This is a case of unrepentance that, again, if not checked, would be like a poisonous weed in the garden that would destroy the whole garden. And so Paul says we have, we have to deal with it. So that's where we're at now as you think about the action that Paul says to take. And it's quite simple in this particular situation. Paul says there is no need for a long, drawn-out process as could be uh, it, uh, alluded to elsewhere in the New Testament. Because of where this situation is, Paul just says this guy needs to be removed. He says it in a number of ways. Verse 2, let the one who's done this be removed from among you. Later, he says in verse 5, deliver this man over to Satan. Later, he says at the end of the text, purge the evil person from among you. It's quite clear what Paul thinks they should do. <laughs> that this guy should not be in the fellowship. Now, this may be strange teaching to your ears if you've never heard much about uh, this subject of, of the ministry of church discipline, um, but it's an important one for us to think about. As Pastor Donnie was just alluding to in leading us in worship, that we are a corporate community, a body, and uh, we need to think not just about our personal holiness, but congregational holiness. And here, Paul pictures the church gathered together in the name of Christ, under the authority of Christ, who desire to obey the word of Christ. And they are to, look at this phrase, deliver this man over to Satan. Now this sounds really harsh, but you notice the purpose of it is so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The purpose of this confrontation, lovingly done, or disciplinary action, if necessary, is not punitive, it's restorative. The goal is to see people come to their senses and come to know Jesus and just Allowing them to go on in unrepentant sin without ever confronting them gently is not actually loving. Like you are to desire the salvation of people. And so he says, hand them over to Satan, which simply means, I think, outside of the realm of the church is where Satan is, is he's the God of this world, Paul says. So we, we hand them outside of the realm of the church into Satan's realm, as it were, for, notice this, the destruction of their flesh, that is, that they may see the sinfulness of sin and through repentance put sin to death and be brought to life. That they would see how bad the situation is and come to their senses. 
that they would turn from their self-sufficiency and self-reliance and sinful activity until they come to a change of heart. So maybe by tasting the bitterness of sin outside of the fellowship, they may repent and be saved. His spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is what the churches desire, the salvation of people. Evangelism, we're trying to reach people outside of the church, and in church discipline, we're reaching those who are within the church, and we're seeking their salvation, those who have turned from God, living in habitual, unrepentant sin. So he then uses an illustration, this uh, illustration of leaven, when he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This is a popular saying among the Jewish people. This was the idea of putting fermented dough into a batch of unleavened dough in order to make the bread rise. Just a little bit of that has a big impact. Today we say one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. And here you see one place in Scripture where the idea is taught that your personal sin, my personal sin, affects others. It's very common in our culture today to hear someone say, I'm not hurting anyone, this is just my decision. Nothing could be further from the truth. One sin always affects others. Here, the offender is impacting the entire church. And so Paul says it has to be addressed. You would hope this guy would repent. When confronted, he repents, and and we're pursuing holiness together. But this seems like a a period where Paul says, hey, it's time to, to remove this individual. Purge the evil person, he says, from among you. Now, this is not great popular teaching today. I go on the news this evening and and start teaching all this, and uh, you guys would need to protect me from social media attacks and (laughs) everything else. But this this is what God has given us in his word. He cares about his church. And there is always pushback on this subject that this is not loving. And again, I would contend there's nothing more unloving than to allow sin to go unchecked and to see a person ruin their soul and ruin a church and ruin the church's witness. And it's happened time and time and time again throughout history. And it's, right, it's very plainly taught uh, in the scripture, not just here in 1 Corinthians 5, but in Matthew 18, Galatians 6. We as a church have been through all of these passages at some point or, or another. In Galatians 6, Paul says that we should restore the wayward in a spirit of gentleness. We're not on a witch hunt. We're not the, the righteous police What we are is trying to protect the purity of the church and trying to seek the good of the person who's living in sin. And we're not caring if we don't go after them. Or in Matthew 18, where Jesus says, if someone has offended you, go to them. If that doesn't work, take some others. If that doesn't work, take it to the church. And here Paul is dealing with not a case of private sin, but a publicly known grievous sin that threatens the health of the church and her witness. And he says that it is time to act. Now, the last thing I'll say before we move to point two is you should read 1 Corinthians 5 with 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 11. Because if this individual would repent, then it could be a beautiful moment of reconciliation and forgiveness, which is the design. And that's what happens in 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 11. Paul tells of a situation where a guy had just done great damage to the church. And then something wonderful happened. He apparently repented. And he tells the church not to expel them, but to forgive them and welcome them. It's, and you see this, this brilliant balance. Rebuke, correct discipline, forgive, comfort, reconcile. If we don't do both ministries, we allow Satan to have the upper hand. Yeah. 
We have to do both. So he says in that case, in 2 Corinthians 2, the guy has turned and come back to the Lord. So here's his teaching to the church in that moment. Turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Reaffirm your love for him. And so God blesses the church that takes sin seriously enough to rebuke and discipline, but is also gracious enough to forgive and be reconciled to an offender who has repented. The ministries of both correction and forgiveness are needed for the church to maintain its purity, its unity, and its witness. So, with that in mind, let's go to number two. A holy community remembers the gospel. I love what Paul does as he's talking about this individual case, a case of shocking sin, and he now puts it in the larger storyline of the Bible. As he talks about Christ, our Passover lamb, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And notice what he says to the church. As you really are unleavened. You really are pure. Believe it. Now live in light of that. How are we pure? How are we unleavened? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. We're not pure in our own works, our own efforts, but because Jesus Christ has made us pure. So he puts the whole situation in light of the gospel. He goes, if you like, to the gospel, not law, and shows us the story of Exodus, the whole story of, of Scripture, of redemption. And he says, you, Corinthian church, are a new batch. Now live in a way that corresponds to that newness. And Paul does this over and over in 1 Corinthians. You notice how he asked the question in verse 6, do you not know? He, he raises that question, do you not know, 10 times in 1 Corinthians. As he's teaching along, we saw the first one in chapter 3, verse 16, when he says, do you not know you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Later he says, we'll see uh, in the new year, Lord willing, 2024, uh, verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 3, do you not know you're going to judge angels? He talks about their future salvation. Or verse 9 of chapter 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What is Paul doing in each of those moments? He's telling the church, remember the gospel. Remember who you are. Become who you are. And we have been transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're not familiar with that Passover lamb, what Paul's saying here, this is a story in the book of Exodus where God's people are told to, to kill a lamb and to put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. Anyone who's sheltered in a house covered by the blood is spared from God's wrath as he pours it out on the firstborn in the land. They were saved by the blood of a lamb. And in a much, much greater way, we who have found shelter under the blood of Jesus Christ do not fear the wrath of God. We do not fear the judgment of God. We have been saved through the blood of another. And Paul says, don't forget it. Don't ever forget, this is what Jesus has done for you. John picks up on this idea, doesn't he, when he says, as he looks at Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, there's a great escalation in this storyline of the Lamb. In Genesis 22, it was a Lamb for one man. In Exodus 12, what Paul's alluding to here, it was a Lamb for a family. In Leviticus 16, it's a lamb for the nation. And in the Gospels, it's the lamb for the whole world. And in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, we get a vision 
of a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation worshiping around the Lamb. So he says, church, as you live out your day-to-day life, remember the gospel and think about it regularly. And on this Thanksgiving weekend, when we could give God thanks for many things, let us give thanks today that Jesus Christ has removed any fear of judgment. He has cleansed us from sin. He has made us new people. He has taken our penalty. He has given us his righteousness. We are made new in the blood of the Lamb. I love the story of Charles Simeon. He was a pastor in the late 1700s, 1800s. He's been called the Luther of Cambridge. Pastored a church called Holy Trinity Church for 54 years. Was the the model for many pastors through the years, including John Stott. And Simeon became a believer in college. And his biographers note that Cambridge was so destitute of evangelical faith that after he was converted, he didn't meet another Christian on campus for three years. His conversion was remarkable. He was 19 years old, sitting alone in a dorm room, Passion Week, 1779, and this is what he reported. In Passion Week, I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper. I met with an expression to this effect, that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. The thought came into my mind, What? May I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then, God willing, I will bear them on my soul not one moment longer. Simeon was transformed. What grace that we can transfer our guilt to another. You don't have to bear it on your soul. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. And then notice how Paul follows that up in verse 8 when he says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Notice how he calls the Christian life a festival. They were to celebrate the Passover for seven days, but he says we're not celebrating the, the work of Jesus just for seven days once a year. We celebrate this festival every day. You know, there's some holidays we we shouldn't celebrate every day. (laughs) Like we we couldn't fit in our pants, let's be honest. And and I don't want to see cranberry sauce, but once a year. Uh, I don't know why people like that. Many of my family do. But you spend hours on on the food and then it's right straight out of a can. Um, And nevertheless, I digress. There are certain celebrations that you you only need once a year. Um, But this celebration... The celebration of what Jesus has done for us and making us pure and clean is something we celebrate all the time, every day. And we, we should never forget it. And in this, as Paul's describing the Christian life as a festival, I want you to see that he addresses implicitly one of the major problems that people have with the concept of pursuing holiness is that they think they're giving up joy by pursuing holiness. But notice, he doesn't say we're, we're celebrating a funeral. We're celebrating a festival. Holiness is a festival. When you choose Jesus over sin, you're not losing, you're winning. You're not losing joy, you're finding joy. Obedience is not slavery, it's freedom. Right? Obedience is not boredom. It's not burden. It's blessing. This life is a festival. When you enjoy Jesus and follow his word, it's a festival. So be wise. May I be wise. May we be wise and say yes to Jesus and say no to sin. That's where life is found. That's where joy is found. 
And we want those, even that we're calling back into the fold to experience that. That's what we want for them. So he tells them to remember the gospel. Thirdly, a holy community reaches the world. Briefly on this, verses 9 to 13. Paul has written a letter that we don't have to the Corinthians, a different letter, that they've misunderstood. And so he wants to clarify uh, some things to them. And one of the things that they've misunderstood is that when he says, don't associate with sexually immoral people, he doesn't mean to withdraw from unbelievers uh, uh, or to, that if you wanted to do that, you would have to be removed, he says, from the whole world. Like, it's impossible. He's talking about not associating with those who call themselves brother or sister in the way you would associate with a real brother or sister. He's drawing a distinction between those who are genuine believers and those who are, who are not. And so as he's talking about this, and as he talks about, you know, that God judges those on the outside, we are the ones who are to judge those on the inside. There are two little lessons here that I think are good reminders for us as we think about reaching the wor- world. And the first is this. We cannot reach the world if we are never around outsiders. Don't hear this idea of church discipline that we are now this little holy community that's to be put away in a bomb shelter somewhere or in in Waco, Texas or wherever it might be and we are to withdraw from society. That's not the point. No, we are in the world but not of the world. Jesus prayed in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. He left us in the world to be his witnesses. So we have to be around unbelievers, and we should do that, and most of you are doing that on a regular basis. So just know, being pursuing holiness is not a call to isolationism. We have to be around uh, unbelievers. We have to have contact with them, to love them, to serve them. I love how he says God is going to judge the outsiders. Our job is not to judge them, to disdain them, to throw rocks at them. We used to be them. Our job is to reach them. And then the second thing he says is we cannot reach the world if we're just like the world. Tolerating sin ruins our witness. He's going to say the same thing in a different way in chapter 6 when he says the church is being guilty of taking everything to court. Not like criminal offenses, but minor disputes. They're acting like the pagans. And he says you're doing all of that before unbelievers, chapter 6, verse 6. He wants the church to know that what you do internally affects your witness externally and the church can give christ a bad name by not following his word on matters we, we can't be just like the world in chapter six the, the, in corinth everybody took everybody to court all the time you know in chapter five the sexual immorality is is pervasive and he's saying you can't be just like them if you want to try to reach them And so you notice the Corinthians, what they've done is a a temptation that the church has, and that is to flip what Paul says in verses 9 to 13. What they've done is tolerated the behavior of a man who took his father's wife while shunning the sexually immoral outside the church, where the posture should have been, get your house in order and go love those who are outsiders into saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's very easy for the church just to rail on the outside world and allow stuff to go on internally that is unhealthy, that is so persistent and so problematic. Where Paul flips it, he says, we've got to get our house in order. Otherwise, we have nothing to offer the world, and they're not going to listen to us. So we reach the world. It might sound crazy, but to reach the world, church discipline is very important. 
because it protects the purity of the church and the witness of the church. So by God's grace, church, let's seek to be a holy and humble community. Let's seek to live out our faith, as Paul says, in sincerity and truth. He doesn't say in perfection, but in sincerity. In sincerity and truth. And even in a passage that is instructive and corrective, there's a lot of grace in this text. Here are some ways I see grace and hope as I close and pray. There is forgiveness of sins offered to everyone through Jesus Christ. The Passover lamb is for the world. We all need the Passover lamb. If you've never experienced salvation in Jesus, we hold out to you him. We also see grace in the fact that God desires to save people. He is concerned not just about outsiders, but also those who are insiders who are not actually Christians. And he urges the church to act for their benefit. We see grace in that we're given the opportunity to repent and to experience God's grace. And we see in this text that we're given the gift of the church, a covenant community where we can receive instruction, care, correction if needed, encouragement, so that you and I may persevere in faithfulness. Because we all know, as the song says, we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And one of the ways we remain faithful is having brothers and sisters around us, spurring us on to love and good deeds until we see Jesus Christ. And we're reminded in all of this that one day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth in which there will be no sin present. We are headed there. I love Cooper's old hymn when he says, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. That's going to happen. May God apply his word to our hearts today and sanctify us by his truth. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, reflecting even more deeply on what Jesus has done for us. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that your word will truly sanctify us. Help us not to minimize sin to rename sin, but to kill it, to repent of it, to always be practicing repentance. We pray that you would help us to uh, be a community that practices the ministry of instruction and confrontation as well as forgiveness and reconciliation. Make us a people of your word, uh, even when it's not popular. Make us a people of your word, even uh, when it's hard at times. We pray that you would use all of us to spur one another on to love and good deeds, uh, that we would... Uh, uh, be the kinds of, of uh, uh, believers uh, that don't live in isolation, uh, but seek to reach those who are outsiders. And may we also be those who encourage those who are here uh, on the inside. We thank you for the grace we have in Jesus Christ, for the fact that we're sheltered under his blood today. And we give you praise. In Jesus' good name. Amen.